Last Sunday at this time, I was uh, in the Outer Banks in North Carolina at every union with seven of my best friends from college. Uh, friendships we've had for maintained for over 20 years now, which is really special. And we've committed to, uh, to a reunion every other year to enjoy and to maintain uh, these really special friendships. It was amazing. It was life-giving. It was wonderful. Uh, and since we've moved to Wisconsin, I don't get to the ocean much anymore. I mean, the real ocean, like not the one that we call Lake Michigan around here, the fake one. It's great, but it's not the ocean. And so I got to be you know, something. But I got to go to the ocean. I got to play in the Atlantic Ocean last weekend, which is a lot of fun. And I did something, um, even though I'm old now, that I've done since I was a kid. Maybe you do this too. I go into the ocean. I go up into the waters over my waist, and I, I dig my feet into the muddy seafloor. And then I, I try to not let my feet be moved as the waves crash into me. Anybody do this? It's just me. If you take a step, you lose, you know? And so I'm trying to, like, you know, withstand the waves crashing against me. I'm glad I'm, glad I'm not alone. <laughs> and, I, and when I was younger, the waves used to win all the time. Like, just toss me around like a rag doll. But now that I'm older and um, a little heavier, uh, <laughs> now most of the time I win. Unless there's a massive wave that comes at me. The waves crash against me, but my feet stand firm. I'm rooted to the ground. And friends, the scriptures say that's a good analogy for the Christian life. Paul wrote to the Ephesians uh, in the Ephesian church, expressing his hope that, quote, they would no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Rather, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. In this analogy, the world is like an ocean. And the wind and the waves are like all these competing ideas about what life is all about. And if your feet are not rooted in something solid, you're going to be tossed around. You're going to be blown around by every latest shift in the wind. We know what it's like to live in a secular age. There are all sorts of competing ideas about God, about what it means to be human, about what life is all about. And if we feel like we're tossed to and fro, we're like just hit on both sides with all these crashes of waves and all these winds just throwing us around. So that is why we're preaching this series on the Apostles' Creed. It's called Rooted. Because the Apostles' Creed is the oldest and the simplest expression of what Christians believe at their very core. This is the heart of what Christian faith is all about. So what Christians have lived and, uh, have, Christians have lived and died by this confession for almost 2,000 years years. And we're doing it because I think it can offer clarity for our confusion. It can offer unity for our division. It can offer rootedness that could hold us in place in an ever-shifting world. So I hope you're enjoying We're about three weeks into it, but it's for those who are weary of being tossed to and fro, who are tired of being unsure about what to believe or what Christians believe. We want to find some solid ground to stand secure upon. That's what we're doing. And today, we're in the third week of it, and we're considering the section of the creed about the incarnation of the Son of God. We're talking about the line, where it, what it means to believe in Jesus Christ, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. That's the line we're looking at. And interestingly, I find it fascinating, last week, which Cam preached uh, so wonderfully, last week was all about how Jesus shares the identity of God. He is the only son. He is the exact imprint of his nature. But today, it's about how Jesus shares the identity of you. He is fully God, and he's fully man, in order to fully save us from our sins. 
Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, once said, It is no news to tell me that a great prophet has been born. There have been great prophets before, but the world has never been redeemed from evil by mere testimony to the truth, and never will be. But tell me that God is born, that God himself has espoused our nature and taken it into union with himself. Then the bells of my heart ring merry peals, for now may I come to God, since God has come to me. I wish we said that, ring merry peals. I'm going to steal that now. Why is your heart ringing merry peals? Because I may come to God, because God has first come to me. Brothers and sisters, that's Christianity. You can now come to God only because God has first come to you. And that's what we're going to explore today, the Son incarnate. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Come from Hebrews, chapter 2. If you notice, we're trying to do all these sermons out of Hebrews, just to kind of root it in the book. And we'll see if we can do them all, but this one's perfect. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, that is, why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, or because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. We pray for the preaching of God's word. The Lord, I ask for your help uh, in this moment, help for these hearers and help for me as I speak. And Lord, I pray specifically that you would help me not to proclaim myself, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with myself as your servant for Jesus' sake. I ask, Lord, that the God who said, let light shine out of darkness would shine in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Would you be seated, please? Conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So I guess welcome to Christmas in September. (laughs) Uh, I even tried, I even pitched to Reuben that maybe we should sing Joy to the World today, Um, but he convinced me it would be hokey, 
and that you would be able to take it seriously. And he's probably right. <laughs> so you can thank him for that. But friends, we are talking about what Christmas is all about, which is the coming of God into our own flesh. We are talking about the virgin birth of, G- of Jesus. And we have to admit up front that this creates some difficulty for us, for some people, as modern people. I think perhaps next to the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the virgin birth is viewed by most skeptics as most implausible. It challenges our modern notions of what's possible. In a letter to John Adams, it is purported, it's challenged, by the way, I've Googled this, but it is said that Thomas Jefferson once wrote this to John Adams. He said, the day will come when the mystical generation of Jesus, by the supreme being as his father in the womb of the virgin, will be classified with the fable of Minerva in the brain of Jupiter. In other words, to Jefferson, and perhaps to many others, it's a fable. It's a myth. can't be real. doesn't make sense in our scientific world. Friends, that is the question before us today. Was Jesus, in fact, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? Did it happen? And more importantly, does it matter? What do we lose if this is not true? And first of all, we should just note out of the gate that the Bible treats the virgin birth as a matter of fact. If you read Luke chapter 1, that's where an angel appears to Mary to tell her the news that she is going to conceive in her womb and bear a son, and she is to call his name Jesus. And so Mary's first question is a pretty obvious one. How will this be since I am a virgin? How will this be when I've never been intimate with a man? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And if you read the other account in Matthew 1, the gospel writer adds that all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In other words, the virgin birth is the fulfillment of prophecy, of Isaiah's prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. So in a lot of ways... Whether you believe in the virgin birth or any other miracle is dependent on what you believe about the Bible itself. J. Gresham Mason once wrote, Everyone admits that the Bible represents Jesus as having been conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The only question is whether in making that representation the Bible is true or false. You see, the deeper question is whether you believe what, that the Bible is God's word or not. Can you trust what it says or not. Because I can't, the Bible treats the virgin birth as a fact, and, it, and in fact, it doesn't tell us so much how it happened, but why it happened. The only thing we get about how is what Luke says, that the Holy Spirit would come upon Mary, and the power of the Most High would overshadow her. In other words, just like the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters in Genesis 1 to be the active agent, and God's creating the world out of nothing, So now, at this first act of new creation, the Spirit is like hovering over the waters of Mary's womb to bring something out of nothing, for God's Word to take flesh in the person of Christ. We are not told much much else about how it happened, but we are told a whole lot about why it happened and why it had to be this way. One commentator I read this week reminds us that this is the real miracle 
of Christmas is that God came to us. God came to us. We need to keep our eye on the real miracle because this is what makes real Christianity. You see, friends, religion tells you that you've got to work your way up to God. Christianity tells you that God came all the way down to you. Religion says you've got to seek God in order to save yourself. Christianity says that God came to seek you and to save the lost. That's why this is so important. Conceived by the Holy Spirit means that Jesus is fully God. He has no earthly father. Jesus was never created. He has always existed in the eternal union with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. He is fully God. And born of the Virgin Mary means that Jesus is fully human. He has a human mother, just like you. He got everything human from her except her sin nature. He was made like us in every way. Friends, Jesus had to learn how to eat and to walk and to speak, just like us. He suffered and he died, just like us. Jesus is fully man. See, he must be fully man in order to represent us. He must be fully God in order to redeem us. And friends, my favorite summary of why this matters is that God, why it matters that God became man in Jesus it's from the early church father, Irenaeus. I put it in the front of your bulletin. Irenaeus says very succinctly, he became what we are so that we might become what he is. That's why it matters. He became what we are so that we might become what he is. See, he shared in our human life so we might share in his divine life. He set aside his glory so that we might have our glory restored. He became sin, that we might become righteousness. He became alienated and abandoned, that you, that we might become adopted and accepted. He tasted death, so that we might taste life eternal. He became what we are, so that we might become what he is. This is the gospel in summary form. And friends, this is a beautiful theological concept, but I want to ask from here on out, what practical difference does it make to believe this? What practical, practical difference does it make in the lives of those who profess to believe in Jesus Christ, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? What does it do? What kind of rootedness can it give you in this ever-shifting world? And for this, I want to turn to our reading from Hebrews chapter 2. Because this is perhaps the greatest meditation in the whole Bible on the practical benefits for you for the incarnation of Christ. I think Hebrews 2 tells you two things. That Jesus, Jesus became what you are so that you might know the comfort of a glorious future and a gracious family. A glorious future and a gracious family. Let's look at those two things. And they won't be as long as normal points. I know we're, you know, a good ways into the sermon. But hang with me. First of all, a glorious future. This section we read provides a brief history of humanity, if you will. And in the pursuit of the question, what is the future of humanity? In other words, what awaits us in the world that is to come? And the writer starts in verse 5 by talking about angels, which is a little strange, but if you read the book of Hebrews, you understand in context. The writer says it's not the angels who are going to rule over the world that is to come, because evidently that was a false belief in the original audience. Somehow they, the angels were going to rule over the end of all things, the, the, the end of the world. 
But the writer asserts, no, 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 it's going to be human beings who are supposed to rule over creation at the end of all things. And so to back up his argument, he quotes from Psalm 8. By the way, he didn't, he's like, somewhere it's written, somewhere in the Bible, which I love, because uh, I can do that most of the time. But he says somewhere, he's from Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 is the Bible's own commentary of God's act of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. And in that psalm, the psalmist asks, when I look at all the glorious things that God has made, when I look at the heavens, when I look at the moon and the stars which you have set in place, who am I? Like, how do human beings rank in comparison to all this? That's a great question, isn't it? Maybe you've asked that. Maybe you've looked around at all the amazing things that God has made and said, who am I in comparison to this? Because the answer is that human beings are created to be even more glorious than everything you see around you. More glorious than the moon and the stars and the planets and the greatest sunset you've ever seen. You are created to be more glorious than that. Look at verse 6. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have put everything in subjection under his feet. What the psalmist is saying, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, while man is on earth, he's a little lower than the heavenly beings, but he is crowned with glory and honor. That is elsewhere only said in the Bible of God alone. God is crowned with glory and honor, but so are human beings because we alone are made in his image. Furthermore, it says God has put all things in subjection under our feet, meaning we were created to rule the world, to care for it on God's behalf. This is the original design of of humanity. We were created, brothers and sisters, for glory, to be glorious governors of God's glorious creation. That means right now, if you were to look at, the, at your neighbor sitting on your right and on your left, you were looking at the most glorious thing in all of creation. Truly. You were looking at the creation that God cares about the most. Because you're made in his own image. Because you're crowned with dignity and honor. You are kings and queens that were meant to rule all of creation. But then the writer turns and acknowledges a problem, right? And that is, we are not living up to our original design. Look at verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, that is human beings, he left nothing outside his control. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. In other words, the author says, when I look around at human beings, I don't always see them living like they are crowned with glory and honor. I don't see them ruling the world the way God intended. The writer says, I don't see it. And brothers and sisters, this is because sin has incapacitated us. It has marred us. It has wounded us. Because of sin, we now live in guilt and shame rather than glory and honor. Because of sin, we use or abuse the creation for our own ends rather than serving it and caring for it the way God intended because of sin, we are glorious ruins. And left to ourselves, we will never reach the glory for which we were created, not on our own. So this is a real question mark for the future of humanity. What, what is to become of human beings? Well, the answer from the author of Hebrews is that Jesus became one of us precisely 
to restore our dignity, to prepare a glorious future for us. Catch what he's saying. He's saying, at present, I don't see human beings ruling and reigning like they should. But what do I see? Verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Friends, Jesus, though he is God, made himself for a little while lower than the heavenly beings. He became a real human being. He tasted every bit of our human life, our suffering, even our death. But friends, he did so redemptively. That is, he lived as you and I were made to live. He lived crowned with glory and honor. He died to death that we were supposed to die because of sin, but he rose again in victory over death. And now he is at the right hand of God where he is crowned with glory and honor with all things under his feet. See, the author says, I don't see the glory of humanity, but I do see the glory of Jesus. And I see that he has blazed a path to ensure a glorious future for those who are in Christ. That's the idea behind verse 14, the idea of a trailblazer. Someone who blazes a trail, who goes ahead, who blazes a trail where there was none, so that all those who follow after him can reach the destination. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There it is. He became what we are so that we could become what he is. For all those who follow Christ, there is a glorious future where you will be what you were created to be. You'll be crowned with glory and honor. You will rule the world together with Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of your faith. He is the one who has destroyed the power of death. He's taken away our fear of death because death is now but our entrance into that glorious future. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine what it will be like when you are fully free to be what you were created to be? A restored, dignified human being. I imagine it will feel something like what Harry Potter must have felt on his 11th birthday when Rubius Hagrid showed up and told him who he really was. Remember the line? You're a wizard, Harry. Right? After 11 years of not knowing who he was, of what he was created to be, now he finally knows. What a joy. So I say to you, friends, you were created for glory and honor and dominion. And though sin tried to ruin it all, Jesus became what you are to take that sin upon himself so that he could restore the dignity of being human and ensure a glorious future for all those who are in Christ. As the text says, he is bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Now you know who you really are, what you were created to be. What a joy. Secondly, friends, I want you to consider the practical benefit of becoming a part of a gracious family. Not only do you have a glorious future, you're a part of a gracious family. Jesus became what you are so that you you could become part of his family. When Jesus became a man, you gained the best older brother you could possibly imagine. He's an older brother who's not ashamed to identify himself with you, a sinner. 
Look at verse 11. For he who sanctifies, that is the sinless Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that is sinful us, all have one source. In other words, we are of the same family. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Friends, this is a remarkable statement. Jesus is our brother, and he's not ashamed to associate with us. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done. When I started my freshman year of high school, my sister was a senior, which created some interesting dynamics. When I passed her in the hall or ran into her around the campus, she was most definitely ashamed to associate with me. I was the annoying, pubescent little brother, and she did not want that soiling her reputation. Friends, not so with Jesus. He loves to be seen with you. He tells everyone, hey, this is my brother. This is my sister. When he worships, the image says, he stands shoulder to shoulder with us in the congregation as one of us. He declares God's name to us and over us because he's not ashamed of us. Because he is one of us, like us in every way except for sin. Because do you know that if you are in him, listen, he is not ashamed of you. He is not ashamed of you. He knows everything about you, and he's still proud to call you his own, his own family. And this is because Jesus is not only the best brother you've ever had, but he's also the only priest you'll ever need. Look at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's a good word, isn't it? Propitiation. That's a great theological word. What does it mean? It means to put away the wrath of God. It means to satisfy divine justice that was due for our sins. Jesus became like us so that he could represent you. So he could stand in your place, endure the wrath of God on your behalf. And that's why he's not ashamed of you. Because he's already paid the price for your sins already. And furthermore, now he's a priest that can help you in your own fight with sin because he knows exactly what it's like to walk in your shoes. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. At this reunion last week when my friends, I talked about all of us, are about 41 or 42 years old now. That means our parents are getting up there in age. And so far, of the eight of us that were there last weekend, two of us have lost our fathers. Myself and my friend Brett, who lost his father just this past year. And this was the first time we had actually seen each other since then. And I can't tell you how he and I could connect on a level that no one else could. Because we both know what it's like. We know what it's like to walk that path. We could console each other. We could help each other. Friends, in the same way, but times a million, Jesus understands you because he knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to be a human in a fallen world. And that's what makes him so merciful. It's what makes him faithful to help you no matter what you're facing. Friends, sisters, listen to me. Even if you feel like you're so alone, like no one in this world understands you or what you're going through, Jesus does. He's a merciful and he's a faithful priest. 
This is it, brothers and sisters. This is what it means to believe in the Son incarnate, that He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. It is to believe that He became what you are so that you could become what He is. It's to know you have a glorious future because Jesus paved a path to the restoration of the glory of being a human being. It is to know that until then and into all eternity, you have a gracious family headed by our great brother and priest who identifies with us, he prays for us, he helps us in our time of need because he gets it. He gets you. So what do we do with this? <laughs> this is a massive doctrine. What do, what do we walk away with? Let me offer just one thing in closing. I think one of the best things we can do as Christians who confess this creed, if you believe this, is to make it abundantly clear to anyone and to everyone that you are a Christian not because you found God, because he found you. That makes all the difference, friends. It is not I who worked my way up to God. It is God who came down to me, into my humanity, into my suffering, into my death. It is not I who went out looking for God. It is he who went out looking for me and enabled me to seek him. Friends, our song is not hallelujah, I found Jesus. It's hallelujah, he has found me. And that makes all the difference in the world. Let that be our creed. Let that be what we tell our friends and neighbors. It's not about us. It's about him who came all the way down for us to make us what he is. Let's pray together and let's ask God to help us. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you didn't just uh, send us messages about you and about your story, but you actually sent a person. You sent yourself. You sent Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that he is fully God and he is fully man so he could fully save us from our sins. Help us to know at a deeper level what it means to believe this. And I pray as we do, he would give us rootedness. He would enable us to, to endure the, the winds and the waves that toss us to and fro. Lord, hold us in place that we are in Christ. We are what he is because he became what we are. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.